0: Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to the third podcast in my series on the letters of the New Testament. Who knew there was so much to learn about letters? I hope you found this series informative and thought provoking. I know I have. Much of the information I'm sharing with you I learned from the BibleProject.com website and their study on the letters. We have discovered that writing a letter 2,000 years ago involved a lot more than just scribbling some thoughts down on a Hallmark card, slapping a stamp on the envelope, and sending it through the United States Postal Service. I hope you have had an opportunity to consider what the religious, social, and political environment was like for these writers 2,000 years ago. Perhaps they are entering into the very first cancel culture. There were many who wanted to shut them down, figuratively and literally. Few of us will ever put our life on the line for what we write down in a letter. These authors definitely did. Most of our letter writers died painful, brutal deaths for their beliefs. Understanding this sobering fact should also help us understand The truth behind these words. They were willing to die so that others could truly live. That's complete nonsense to the world, isn't it? We reviewed the four major sects of the Jewish faith and how each of these groups would have potentially received the news of Jesus and the contents of these letters. Some would have considered the news threatening to their way of life, like the Sadducees, who were the religious elite, you know, the priests in the temple and often friends of the political leaders. The Pharisees would have been accepting of the news if, in fact, it could be proven that this was the Messiah and if these new followers of Jesus adhered to the strict 613 laws of Moses. They felt you had to become a Jew before you could become a follower of Jesus. The Zealots well, they would have been excited about a Jewish Messiah as long as he was a freedom fighter and willing to kick some Roman butt. Ultimately, they were probably disappointed that their Messiah died, such a painful, humiliating death at the hands of the hated Romans. But then, when Jesus rose from the dead, they again got their hopes up, only to be more confused when Jesus left earth 40 days later with still no revolt. The Essenes, While they probably weren't super happy about the fact that they weren't the only ones chosen to usher in the kingdom with the Messiah, they certainly were not eager to mingle with non-Essenes. Remember, they considered the temple priests to be corrupt, and they essentially led a monastic existence in the desert. We then discussed the unpopular notion contained in the letters that all were created equal under God—rich, poor, Roman, Jew, slave, free— Equally radical was the notion that Jesus, not the emperor, was Lord and Savior. Finally, there's an interesting use in the New Testament letters of what you can maybe call sibling language. The church was seen as a family, and people called each other brother and sister. Jesus was their brother. Again, think about how radical this was. Romans, Greeks, Jews, brothers and sisters in Christ— rich, poor, slave, free, related through Christ? Hopefully, you are starting to see that the letters really were challenging and transforming their culture with the good and radical news of Jesus. They were changing the status quo. Most of the listeners of these letters had never seen or heard of the Old Testament scriptures. These letters were... God inspired to address some very serious issues that were plaguing the early churches. Some letters were in response to questions that they had. Other letters were addressing situational issues that really threatened to undermine this new religion. The writers all knew that they were playing an important role in continuing the news of Jesus. In today's podcast, we're going to take a look at the form that most of these letters followed and how best to study these letters based on this form. When my kids were little, in order to encourage them to handwrite their thank you notes, I would often either create or purchase a form letter where the kids would insert certain words like, dear blank, thank you for the blank. I look forward to using it for blank. You get the idea. Nowadays, since many of us so infrequently write a business letter, for example, there are templates in Microsoft Word that we can choose to help us get the correct form for the letter we're composing. 2,000 years ago, there was a template or traditional form that most letter writers followed. Unfortunately for them, there was a bit more than just filling in the blanks, but as we look at some of the letters, you will recognize that they do follow a certain sort of standard form. The standard form can quickly be summarized as follows. The first line contains the name of the author and any co-author, and sometimes a brief description of their qualifications. The next line is who the letter is written to. This is followed by a prayer of thanks. And then it's followed by the body of the letter, the real crux of why they were writing this. And then the end of the letter would conclude with a blessing, a final greeting, sometimes messages of who says hello, future travel plans, etc., and then a final prayer. It's actually quite a beautiful form. Remember that our letter writers, Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, all wrote these letters to be read aloud. I'm going to look at a few examples so that you can start to recognize the form and the flow. So first, we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Galatians, which were the churches from his first missionary journey. And remember, this is not a church in the traditional way we think of today, brick and mortar. Most of the time, these were gatherings of new believers in in homes. The letter to the Galatians was written around 49 AD, and we believe it was most likely one of Paul's first letters. Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to study verses 1 through 9. The first line says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man— but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me. So this first line is where Paul states who the letter is from. Here Paul is saying the letters from him, but also from his traveling companions, all the brothers with me. Paul is also spelling out from whose authority he is speaking these words, an apostle, sent not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's quite an intro. Can you imagine introducing a speaker and saying, next we have Dave, sent not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ. It's quite an endorsement. But as my dad used to say, it ain't bragging if it's true. Now, if you look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, for example. The letter starts this way, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. So, we know the Philippians letter is composed by Paul and Timothy together. Again, under whose authority? Servants of Jesus Christ. Next, we have the line that tells us who the letter's addressed to. If you look at Galatians, it says, to the churches in Galatia in Philippians it says to all the Saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and the deacons now this is interesting some letters were intended to be circulated to other churches like we know the letter to the Ephesians and we actually call these letters circular letters however The letter to the Philippians is a personal letter directed specifically to them in a really beautiful way to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. You'll notice it mentions here and the overseers and the deacons. Well, did you ever consider who's leading these early churches? Men became bishops, pastors, and deacons and led these early churches. Now, their qualifications, if you're interested, are actually explained in the letter 1 Timothy and also in Titus's letter. So, the next line in the letter is a prayer of thanks. In Galatians, it says, "'Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ.'" who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Such a warm, beautiful opening. I can almost imagine the listeners turning to each other and giving each other the thumbs up or patting themselves on the back. <laughs> they have no idea what's going to hit them. The next line in the letter to the Galatians is extremely direct. Remember, Paul is literally pained by the word, so there's no time to beat around the bush. Here's where we get to the body of the letter, starting at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I will say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Whoa, did you see that coming? Well, let's step back. Seems we have a situation here. Paul immediately explains why he's writing this letter. I am astonished you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. What is this other gospel? Paul makes the point that the good news he is preaching, he didn't make up. And why is he having to say this? Someone's questioning this gospel, apparently. The skill we need here is what's called mirror reading. What we're looking at is a mirror, which is reflecting real circumstances, but we can only see one angle of the situation, not the complete picture. Cultural context can help us. So this is where we need to be a detective. Bible scholars have learned that the good news confusion is coming from a group called the Judaizers, J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S. They were preaching a false gospel that salvation is a combination of God's effort and man's effort. Judaizer actually comes from this Greek verb, to live according to Jewish customs. So they were teaching that since Jesus was from Israel and a Jew, therefore, in order to follow Jesus, you have to become a part of the family of Israel. So among other things, they said to be a Jesus follower, men had to be circumcised and also had to adhere to the 613 laws of the Old Testament. This was a crisis for the church. The outward sign of circumcision was really important in the Old Testament for the family of Abraham, but was not a requirement to be received into Christ's family. The saving power of Christ is now available to Jew and Gentile. Now, this letter would be confusing to us if we didn't understand this background. This is why Paul says, Ethnicity is irrelevant. To the good news. No distinction between Jew and Gentile. Good news not based on circumcision, which to a lot of guys, that's good news. Now, in the body of the letter to Galatians, specifically in chapter six, Paul emphasizes that, you know, it's easy to get caught up with outward signs with no regard for the inward condition of the heart. In verse 15, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. In other words, what really matters is that we're completely transformed from the inside out. To God, there's no Greek, no Jew, slave, or free. We're all children of God. So it's important for us to know that this letter to the Galatians isn't a theology essay. Paul is addressing a specific issue the letter serves a purpose so we must read the whole letter to understand why paul or any of the authors are saying what they're saying now there was great distance between some of paul's churches and so when he couldn't visit them he wrote letters just like the other authors wrote letters to teach and encourage the believers and then they all had a staff of volunteers who would deliver the letters, read the letters, and sometimes stay with the church to teach and encourage them. Getting back to the form, after the body of the letter, the authors often conclude with sometimes a quick reminder of why they were writing the letter. So if we look at 2 Corinthians, now here's a quick note, kind of a cool fact. We have two letters called 1st Corinthians and then 2nd Corinthians. Well, we actually believe that they're really 2nd and 4th Corinthians because it appears that there's letter number 1 and letter number 3 that are missing. And this is important because when we read what we call 2nd Corinthians, by that time Paul's already really written three letters. Which then makes sense because Paul is using some really strong language in this letter to correct and to teach them. And it would seem super harsh until we know, look, guys, he's already written three letters. And so he's reminding them again. Let's look at Second Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 through 10. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad that whenever we are weak, you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Wow, that's some pretty awesome parenting there. Then, as with all Paul's letters, he ends with a final greeting. Many of these greetings will sound familiar to you because we often hear them in church, like, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Sometimes Paul will end his letters with hellos and goodbyes from his friends. In Philippians, he ends his letter with, The brothers who are with me send greeting, and all the saints send you greeting, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Yeah, there were Christians in Rome and even in Caesar's household. And Paul knew him. He was saying that they said hello. At the end of Paul's life, he still wrote letters. He's in prison in Rome, and shortly before his execution under Nero, he's going to write his last letter. And this is to his faithful companion, Timothy. At this point, Paul knows his life is about to be over. So, he wants to pass the torch on to the next generation of Christ followers. He's basically saying goodbye to everyone, and there's a real sense of urgency to his writing. This is how he ends 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom— I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, To suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great many teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelists, discharge all the duties of your ministry for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and at the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing, Unquote. Some letters that are written contain special instructions at the end. Colossians, for example, it says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, See to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. This letter actually ends with a note written by Paul in his own handwriting, which we learned from before was a little sloppy and a little large. He writes, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The theme of many of these letters, outlined either in a few paragraphs or through many chapters, it's unity. All the letter writers have this vision of a world where Jesus is king and Jew and non-Jew come together. Allegiance to Jesus has to take precedence over all other issues. All humanity is stuck in sin and needs to be rescued. We're justified by faith alone in God alone. When we believe this, We're given a new status and a new future and are part of a new humanity. Adam chose sin and selfishness and were slaves to sin versus what they refer to as the new Adam, which is Jesus. Jesus offers his life as a free gift to others, and Jesus is the head of this new humanity. To choose to follow Jesus, we leave our old humanity behind. When we trust in Jesus, our life becomes joined with him. That's really the good news of the letters. As we conclude our study of the letters, here's a few takeaways. The Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, and the Gospels are what God wants communicated. And so the apostles are trying to help the new churches live out this reality of the Bible in the first century. The letters show us how the apostles took the biblical story and applied it to the cultural circumstances of the first century. They used the Bible to address their real world issues at that point in time in their lives. We are now called to follow their lead and apply the Bible in our culture today. I hope you can now see how the apostles' letters are really the true fruit of the Great Commission. Remember, Jesus said, Go forth and teach all nations all that I have taught you. This is really what the letters are doing. They were teaching all the nations the lessons of Jesus. Now, here's something to prayerfully ponder. We are at the same point in the Bible story as the apostles. We're all post-resurrection and waiting for Christ's return. Did you ever think of this? They were in the church age, and so are we. Even though they wrote 2,000 years ago, we're still in the same waiting pattern aren't we? Well, these letters were not written to us, God has provided them for us through God's wisdom and through discernment of the Holy Spirit. We can discern how we can apply them to the 21st century. I want to end with a really powerful quote from the Bibleproject.com lesson on the letters. Tim, one of the founders of the Bible Project, says this, The attitude that seeks to only read and obey the Bible on a surface reading removes our personal responsibility to learn and use wisdom to live out the Bible in new and creative ways. Paul often prayed that Christians would be able to discern the will of God. He knew that his words didn't cover the complete wisdom followers of Jesus would need in every culture and every age. Our original calling to rule with God in his wisdom is given new life as we seek the wisdom of the Spirit in our modern age. And then he continues. And, as an important aside, what's interesting to note here is that history is still in the making. We're still in the era of the church, and we still have a job to do. The early first century followers knew this and were determined to write down and share the good news. We should probably be thinking about what we have been doing lately to share the good news. He hasn't returned yet, which means we still have work to do, Unquote. I'm going to end with a doxology by Peter, and this is in his second letter. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by error of lawless men and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Have a blessed day.